Hello and welcome to B2B Better. My name is Jason Bradwell, and on each episode, I talk about how companies can use marketing to navigate big moments of change. Whether this is gearing up for a new funding round, launching a new product, pivoting in response to market trends, or sitting on either side of an acquisition, I break down modern-day B2B marketing strategies into actionable advice with guests who've seen it all before. Let me help you be better than boring. Let's go. Today on B2B Better, I'm very excited to be joined by Shabelle Simon, CEO of Sprintwell. How are you doing, Shabelle? Doing great. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. This has been a long time coming. We first talked what feels like a year ago, and our schedules just haven't been able to align to actually do this interview. But I'm so, so pleased that we managed to pin you down and uh, dive a little bit into your creative process and where you find inspiration. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm excited too. You have a long and well-established career as a creative professional working across a bunch of different businesses. And it's really exciting now what you're working on at Sprintwell. Let's dig a little bit into that to start with. Tell us a bit about your background in the corporate world, some of your experience running creative agencies, and now what you're building. Sure. So I often describe my career as one that progressed over time. I didn't always realize the path I was on. I didn't always understand the path I was on. But in essence, I started out as a self-taught designer as a teenager. And since then, I'd gone very wide in my career, in my design career. And I've covered a number of things between web app and mobile app design, uh, branding, marketing design, sales enablement, sales training that extends on beyond to other like employee training, curriculum design, partner training, customer training. Uh, so I wrap that all up in like learning design or, or curriculum design. And over time, you know, I just, I realized I wasn't picking any particular specialty or any particular uh, domain or even an industry. Most of it was in tech. So usually I'll say, essentially I was early Google mid LinkedIn, late Yahoo and startups in between. Um, and it all ties into something I discovered you know, later in my career, which I realized I went wide as a designer, applying design principles to solve problems in creative ways across different parts of the business and across different types of businesses and different industries. Uh, so that's been my journey. And uh, it, it's allowed me to reach a place, you know, I, I didn't always understand it and it was often frustrating, but once it dawned on me and it, the good news is it, it came from this article from the former CEO of IDEO where he described a similar experience and that he didn't necessarily go down this specialized track that a lot of you know, his design, design school peers you know, had gone down, going down industrial design and designing furniture but instead he went wide and he started to experience different parts of the business and applying design principles to different parts of the business. And I realized that's the track I've been on. I just didn't, I never really understood it. There's a key thing that he said in this article where he said, you can go wide or you can go deep, but you've got to know which one you're doing so you can apply the appropriate strategies to, to that path. Because if you apply wide strategies to a, a narrow path, or vice versa, it's going to lead to some frustration. And then that's 
the realization I had. So once that dawned on me, I realized, ah, going wide was never a problem. I just didn't necessarily realize what I was doing. So it turns out going wide like that, using design across different aspects of the business and going wide eventually um, from a business stage perspective too, early days at Google, mid LinkedIn and late Yahoo also gave me a view into different stages of a business, uh, which are very different and require very different needs from types, the type of agility you need at those different stages and types of senses of urgency. So ultimately when I started mentoring various startups through 500 Global and the Stanford Design School and uh, doing joint workshops with General Assembly and, and others, and exposing, getting exposure to different types of startups in different industries, it allowed me to be able to solve, help solve problems across different industries and across different stages of businesses. And it almost just became, you know, industry agnostic and stage agnostic. It's about applying these first principles. Such an awesome story. And it's really refreshing to hear about your story because I think for like a lot of younger professionals who are perhaps listening to this, who come from a similar background to me in the sense of we have fallen into a career path rather than it being, you know, preordained, I was going to be a B2B marketer from birth. Um, and not really knowing where you want to get to what you want to do with your life, but taking a job that you are interested in to explore. And you're keen to kind of develop some skills that can that can serve you in that job, but you're not quite sure if it's what you're going to be doing in 10, 15 years and being bombarded from all angles around all these things you should be knowing, like you spend time on Twitter. Should I be investing a lot of time into learning about NFTs and, and Web3 or, you know, should I double down on the marketing piece or is there something else that takes my fancy? Uh, it can be a bit of a minefield and you constantly have that FOMO feeling uh, of am I spending enough time in the right places? So it's really, I, th I think it would be quite heartening to hear. Certainly, I think if 21-year-old Jason was listening to you speak now, knowing that it's okay to be curious and it's okay to like dip your toes into a lot of different things. And there is a path where that can ultimately amalgamate and become something cohesive and actually serve you in a very successful career. No doubt. I'm a major advocate for being curious, especially early in your career. And I think perhaps even more so an advocate of staying curious as your career grows and evolves. <clears throat> because as you mentioned, here's this new world of NFTs and Web3 and crypto and whatnot. And if that's something that strikes your fancy and you want to explore that, having that cultivating curiosity over the course of your career allows you to be able to adjust and adapt you know, to new things. I can remember about 10 years ago or so, big data was the big deal. And the sentiment at that time was just prior to that, there was no focus on big data or data analytics or analysis you know, as far as university majors or you know, fields of study. So these, these things emerged, right? They, they came out of you know, changes and evolution. And you could even look prior to that. You know, computer science wasn't even necessarily something that was a major focus that led into all this software development. So I think staying curious in your career is very important as well as starting your career with curiosity. And I advocate for it in some ways because I'm a, I'm a bit of a, well, 
my my wife and others will say I'm not just a bit, but I'm I'm a zigzag kind of person. When most people are zigging, I zag, and it's not something I've always necessarily been conscientious of. And it's not that I'm some pure contrarian. It's just more that I'm wary of why everyone is going in that direction. It makes me want to explore. Well, what's over here in this other direction, and how do I take the bits that make sense from the direction where everyone's heading and bits that they're not heading and how do I find ways to intersect them um, in ways that no one else is because the herd has gone you know left and I'm trying to see what can I take from left and what can I borrow from right and or north south whatever way you want to say it so um, I'll say this too I think I, I'm a big believer in this I think we have to understand who we are we you as an individual have to understand who you are and that can change over time but there are certain things that are uh, we have certain temperaments and certain dispositions about ourselves you ask any parent jason with a newborn and who's you know growing since the last time we spoke i know you'll see you'll see certain things start to show at such a young age that's impossible for this child to have learned you know they, they, it's just part of who they are so if the more you understand yourself and, and this is a journey i've been on the more i understand myself the more i understand that it's these cross-disciplinary relationships industry agnostic it's using first principles applied to many different types of problems these are the things that excite me. These are the types of, it's the type of work that, that really lights me up. So specializing, like knowing what motivates me has helped me understand you know, having a deep specialty is not what drives me, is not what moves me, but it, it's, it's being able to cut across many different things. Then the question becomes, how do you, how do you make a fruitful career out of that? Um, so I, I wouldn't even necessarily say it's for everybody. I think we, we definitely need specialists and some people are driven and motivated by that. But even as a specialist, you can still develop and cultivate these skills of curiosity and cross-discipline, cross cross-functional um, exploration and pick and choose and borrow from different things. And it's those, it's those intersections that really become special. Uh, and so the last thing I'll say is to your point, if you go down this track of, I'm going to be a marketer in my career and that's it. And I'm going to just follow along with what everybody else says in, you know, on marketing Twitter, that it's all about threads or it's all about this new type of content or it's this or it's that. Uh, I would just offer the advice, follow along with what people are saying and doing, but also see you know, where are some where are some ways that you can kind of introduce these little interrupts or, or these little micro disruptions that then give you, put you in a better position to differentiate yourself or differentiate your business, whatever, you know, whatever it might be. Someone who's had such an immense amount of exposure to different industries and different roles and different experiences throughout your career, I'm really keen to understand your system on how you keep track of all these different sources of inspiration and, and use them when, when the time comes that it's needed, because, you know, I am some, I'm like a mass cataloger. I've got like folders upon folders in my phone of screenshots I've taken of things of that, are, you know, cool designs or street signs or quotes or, or whatever that 
I may want to use someday. But then typically what I find is they just get buried very quickly by a bunch of other inspiring stuff. So sometimes I feel like I'm pouring a lot of water into the bucket, but the bucket has a lot of mm. holes and you know a lot of this kind of stuff is then falling out. How are you storing that information and accessing that information when the time requires it? Essentially, I'm very similar to the way you do it. One of the things that I find personally frustrating is just the, the sheer amount of new inboxes that have been created from a technology perspective over the course of the, you know, the past decade or so. So you know, I've got Twitter DMs, Instagram DMs, Facebook Messenger, email, Slack, et cetera now LinkedIn messaging and so on and so forth. Plus, you know, I use the Google app extensively. So I'm constantly seeing like what they're, what it's serving up as far as any new articles. Um, and so I'll, I'll save them or I'll bookmark those. And I've got a variety of labels, right? That I'll use to tuck those away. I think the way I tackle it, I spend dedicated time every morning adding to the buckets. And then I spend time sifting. Uh, I like to think of it as this, this den or study like in, in my brain. Um, and I imagine like the kind that I would love to have in my home one day where it's just this, you know, beautiful, beautiful wood library, you know, built in shelves. And I can look at this massive library I have and, and be able to not only add to the collection, but also to just kind of sit back and stand and just look. And sip coffee or bourbon or whatever your drink of choice is when you're sitting in your study and and just to look at the collection and almost just see hate for and so sometimes I'm not even necessarily looking for anything in particular but I'm just revisiting things um, now times when I am looking for something in particular um, instead of hunting for them and feeling like this need of like wait where did I put that where is that Instead, I just treat it as this fun, playful experience where I get to just go through all my old screenshots and, and it becomes this, this nostalgic feeling in a sense, this nostalgic experience of just being able to go back and look at old stuff. And it's often, more times than not, I find when I'm in that playful state of just exploring is when I find something and realize, oh, this thing, you know what? I might be able to use this in something I'm working on currently or for a client. Um, so I give myself more so the space and the time to dedicate a time. For me, it's in the mornings. I call it monk mode. It's just this time for me to be silent. It's time for me to dive deep into any rabbit holes I want from you know articles to my old archives. And so I'm looking to add, and I'm also looking to just explore with my current, my current library, if you will, um, and just let the connections happen as opposed to trying to force them to happen. So that, that's, that's essentially my system or my framework. I, I don't use Notion. I don't really, yeah, I don't use Evernote. Um, I'm still open to exploring those types of systems, but um, for now, for now, it works for me. Monk mode, I love. I think that is such a great way of describing it. And when when you were talking there, in my mind, what I had was like this idea of like a toy box, you know, where yes. you know I've got a three year old, as you said, you know, and and she's got a she's got many toy boxes actually. Um, and sometimes she'll be saying to me, "Oh, I want to play with the toy drum," 
and then she'll dive into her toy box, but then she'll find something else that takes her attention and grabs her fancy, like a doll or something. And then she'll be playing with that for half an hour. And I think to your point there, when you were, when you were explaining your system, I was thinking of her and of her toy box and how you, you may go in to try and find something specific, but it may actually, as you say, take you down the rabbit hole and take you in a completely different direction based on what just comes up, what surfaced up front. Uh, so, and, and then making that dedicated time, you know, you call, you kept referring to the word play. It's like my play time, whatever that is for you, whether that's putting yourself into a corner of your house on, on a comfy sofa with a, with a glass of scotch, whether that's going for a long walk in the morning where you could just kind of get that headspace to, to, to just think, um, you need to carve that time out in the day. You do. And, and I used to not do that at all. And I could tell right away, I could tell over time how much that was burning me out. And I'm specific about using the word burnout here in that I've been studying this for years um, and trying to understand it from a client's perspective and how to help them innovate better and, and do their work better, but also applying it to my own work and, and to the team in that you know, burnout is what I've discovered is not as it's often misinterpreted is not a function of volume of work. Rather, it's a function of the relationship with the work. And if I didn't give myself time and space to play and all I was ever doing was work, then those times when I had to go find the inspiration, like I had to, I had to go find the inspiration. Even if you just listen to the language of that, there's this forced nature that I'm forcing myself to go be creative and to go find this nugget that I've archived in the past in order to use it for work. But when I gave myself space and time in the morning, for me, it's best in the morning. For others, it may be different. For me, having that time in the morning does feel like play because there's no pressure and I get to explore. And then often, as you described going for a walk, often what happens for me is I may be reviewing you know, the, the archives and adding to the archives, but it's not until I go for a walk and I just allow my thoughts to go where they need to go. And, and then I think of one of the things I saw in the morning or that I read about. And that's when my mind starts to explore some, some meaning making and some dot connection. You segued me nicely into my next question, which is, you know, and you, you've touched on this already in what you just said, where do you find these sources of inspiration outside of your professional experience or day job? Oh, I've got a lot of thoughts about this. You know, in a related world, you know, much like marketers and other professions, let's use designers as an example, just kind of my, my early roots. I never studied design per se. I didn't go to a design school. I didn't learn you know, UX processes, UI processes. I, I didn't learn these things from an academic perspective and a formal perspective. A lot of, a lot of my own education came through study and observation, mimicking. You know, I would, a lot of my process, um, I, I realized very recently, I was kind of reflecting back on my career, a lot of what I would do took me all the way back to my childhood when I would spend hours upon hours sketching in my sketchbook. I, I had a, a knack and an interest and curiosity for sketching and drawing, but I never drew anything from just from my own imagination. I would look at, I would look at my comic books 
or I had this uh, gift, I was gifted a subscription to Sports Illustrated for Kids at one point. And I would just see these interesting illustrations. And I remember fondly one of Andre Agassi, a great US tennis player, it was this caricature of him. And I recreated the caricature in my sketchbook. And so I, I realized that later, that was a lot of how I approached design or in branding and marketing is I would see things that appealed to me that I found to be very well done. And I would then apply them to existing projects or apply them to you know, various clients. But so I'll say it like this. The first step is it would just try to reverse engineer it line by line, pixel by pixel, color code by color code. Because the way I looked at it is much like a back to culinary arts. I don't know how to make this yet. So who am I to try to experiment with the recipe? If this is what this amazing chef called for, then I'm going to try to follow this recipe first. So what I would do, for example, is I would just recreate a website, pixel by pixel, color by color. And then I would start to explore, well, what happens if I change the typography here? What if the font's different? Does that affect the tone and personality of the brand? And over time, through that exploration and experimentation, I would discover that I've kind of recreated this now in a way that's you know, my own or, or their own you know, for a client. So it started with this kind of mimicking and, and replicating, and then in you know, this process of, of tuning and changing and, and exploring you know, small changes. And then as one of my favorite designers will say, like mild to wild. So I would make these mild changes and then I would really push myself and go toward wild changes and see where do I want to, how, where do, on that spectrum do I want to be? Mild changes all the way to wild changes or somewhere in between. Um, so my, my point about all this is I had a recent experience where uh, the, what, like what I, what we do at Sprintwell is very different, particularly in like early stage product validation. Like for early stage startups, and even for a growth stage, we're looking to pivot into new aspects of their products or services or into new markets. Um, and especially for enterprises who are looking to innovate and, and launch new, launch anything new is it's, it's all about finding this product market fit and then keeping it as they grow. The challenge is if you're, if you're stuck in the way things ought to be done, it's very uncomfortable to go through the sprint well process, the sprint well system, where a lot of it is very much like you've got this buffet of ingredients and we've got to start piecing things together. And yes, let's go with what works, what we know what works, but we also need to be very experimental. And, and it's also very fast and, and it's all happening at this velocity that a lot of people aren't necessarily used to or comfortable with. And the thing I discovered is there are appropriate seasons for when a marketing playbook works and makes sense. And, and it makes sense to, to run it and to stick to it because you, you know it's tried and true. When you try to apply that, and this connects back to what I mentioned about the, the article from the, the idea of the CEO, but if you try to apply these tried and true methods to something that you aren't sure about yet. And that requires more of an experimental approach, but you're so focused on the process. You're 
applying that tried and true process to something that necessitates experimentation can lead to, in my experience, it can lead to a lot of frustration because you're not able to, you're not able to go at the velocity you need to go with the experimentation or it, it stifles experimentation and you end up kind of with sort of a, you end up with what every, like everyone else has and there's no differentiation. You kind of just basically look the same as everyone else. And you see this in marketing all the time. You see like, ah, oh, okay, typical webinar, typical case study, typical, you know, whatever it might be. And so they just all starts to look the same. Um, oddly, you start to even see this. There's this mimetic drive that happens even with the moment someone sparks, you know, like a new font usage. Like Spotify started using, um, uh, was it circular? And you see this wave of tech startups that then start using circular. Yeah, and and it just it, this happens. I mean, so many examples I can give. That's just one example. But um, my point is, if all you do is focus on the way it's supposed to be done, you're missing out on this ability to experiment a bit and differentiate. So a framework I would offer that's been helpful is considering that if you consider a Pareto principle and you look at 80-20, not from the pure 20% you know, is what yields you know 80% of the results, but more so just split your thinking into 80-20 to say, we'll run the process you know 80%. Like our, our, our headspace is 80% will run the process, but allow 20% to be experimental and then see when something experimental hits, then you can move it into a new playbook potentially. And it becomes a part of your, your 80% space. And I think it goes back to that sense of curiosity, just being willing to, to try different things. Um, as far as I know you asked like where to look for inspiration, I've touched upon this quite a bit in terms of, exploring things like culinary arts, exploring martial arts, and what are elements or aspects of techniques and principles and concepts from say martial arts, um, exploring industries that are related or industries that are completely unrelated. Um, if, you're in, if you're in culinary arts, you're in the restaurant business, what can you learn from aerospace? You know, first glance, you might say nothing, but you might look at the way an aircraft is designed, the way it's built, and that could spark a whole new way of thinking how you organize your kitchen, how you organize, you know, your 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 line cooks and, and so on and so forth. I loved your example about the culinary world and aerospace because immediately it made me think liquid nitrogen did not start in the very first kitchen that was set up right there was a reason it was brought into the kitchen and it was obviously taken as an inspiration from somewhere i think of heston blumenthal you know here in the uk running the fat duck restaurant yes. where they're you know uh freezing all sorts of different things and creating snail ice cream and all this weird and wacky stuff but i always want to pick on on something else you said around the kind of 80 20 rule I think sometimes as marketers, and I've certainly been victim of this fairly recently, you want to see change come and you want to see it come quickly. And you know, there could be potentially a better way of doing things, but for whatever reason, red tape, politics, budget, whatever, you know, insert reason here, you can't go ahead and 
rip up the playbook and start everything from scratch because there just isn't that appetite or perhaps there's a fear from your your colleagues in your organization to, to go ahead and do that because maybe maybe what maybe the playbook works but it's just diminishing returns over a long period of time so you don't you don't feel those negative effects so keenly but sure starting with 20% getting a program starting small and building as you go along is a great place is a great place to be absolutely and i want to actually give you three examples and i hope this helps helps your audience three specific examples where the same sentiment it was shared around well we don't have the budget for big changes. We don't have the budget for lots of experimentation or something new. Let's put it that way. Like we don't have a budget for something new and so on and so forth. Uh, resources, you, know, you could go on and on about, about some of the blockers you, know, you might face. There are three examples I can share. They all follow the same pattern. One was with, at the time, an early stage, an early stage startup that was breaking more into the learning industry. And they, they had this gamified learning platform called MindTickle. They were just breaking in into the U.S. market from India, and I was working with them to find ways to get more brand awareness and uh, more exposure. So we started going to some conferences, uh, started going to some more you know, smaller gatherings, and what we really hit on was this sense of um, focusing on on sales, sales enablement, and sales uh, growth because that's where that's where the the budget was. Now, that's where there's a lot of hiring happening. And so it was a great way to kind of start there with a wedge. Um, what I realized, and this came from a lot of my years in the learning industry, is the learning industry didn't have a whole lot in, by way of, of interesting, entertaining type of content. It was pretty typical and classical, very academic, uh, very much like in this course, you're going to learn how to blah. Um, but what I borrowed was these elements from Wistia. Wistia was focused on video marketing and educating you know, potential customers and existing customers to make better videos and do better video marketing. I love their approach. It was personal, it was human. They had you know, often a single person, you know, a single talent you know, in front of the camera, simple setup. And, um, and I started to notice uh, you know, these slides were the big deal when uh, SlideShare, prior to getting acquired by LinkedIn, SlideShare marketing was all the rage too, right? Like you get, you get uh, your slides in there, get a lot of, get a lot of eyeballs, get a lot of virality potentially. And bottom line is uh, we created this simple slide deck that just walked through these like, three essentials to start doing with your, with your learning experiences. And it, some of it borrowed from how you can set up this really simple um, education, like video, video studio using you know, the Wistia uh, lighting model and, and how they would light their, their video shoots. Um, and there were two other examples you know, that I had in there. And it was just done in a way that looked more like marketing, but to an industry that was typically fed classic you know, academic style slides. Well, it was a big hit. The slide was a big hit. Um, the cover, the cover design of the slide, got featured on, in like the hero section of SlideShare, and there was just this boost in traffic uh, going to MindTickle. We ended up forexing their leads and forexing their sales.
because of it in the, the, the next you know, several months. Well, today, and I haven't worked with them in a long time, they're just a phenomenal group of people. Today, they're valued at $1.2 billion. And it just started with how do we, how do we borrow and use from a variety of sources you know, and, and apply them to you know, marketing to an audience who isn't used to seeing you know, these more, um, say, contemporary style forms of marketing. Um, the other two examples I'll, I'll share more briefly is um, in SoundHound's case, uh, someone who was focused on customer success was trying to figure out how to reduce the inbound volume of customer success, customer support tickets and couldn't just field them all himself and needed to find a more scalable way to address it. So he wanted to, so he was asking me, hey, what was that thing you were talking about, you know, from Wistia? It's like, I'm always, at the time I was always sharing, you know, this whole lighting setup because I, I loved it, but it, it just made so much sense for scrappy, small scrappy teams to be able to do it. Well, in his case, he wanted to come up with more personal kind of human videos and try to see if educating through these videos in a, this more personalized kind of way uh, could bring, you know, lift up the sort of the brand presence, you know, and the brand affinity, uh, knowing, ah, these are actual people from SoundHound, um, as well as, you know, have an effect on the more we educate, hopefully we reduce customer support tickets. Well, didn't have budget, wasn't ready to go pitch this to the head of marketing yet, um, didn't really know what to do. So what did we do? Pulled out the Sprintwell playbook and said, look, let's go prototype this. So we prototyped it. Uh, within eight hours, had the whole lighting set up, just made a single demo video of this new feature. Takes that video, takes that prototype, let's call it, to his head of marketing. She loved it. And she greenlit a whole new series and said, you're in charge of this if you want to go do it. I'll give you the budget you need to go get a camera, to go get lighting, etc." A similar thing happened at Medallia opportunity to come up with a whole new way of creating these learning videos uh, and educate customers, partners, and employees. Didn't have budget, didn't have a video studio, didn't have any of these things. And what do we do? We prototyped. We prototyped what a simple approach could be, use the same kind of lighting setup, et cetera. When the head of HR saw the prototype and realized that it was done on an iPhone in one of the small conference rooms, but it looked like it was done professionally. Greenlit a 7K budget to go get equipment, et cetera. And we ended up you know, outfitting one of the, the conference rooms that were being unused as a, as a makeshift video studio. And guess what? We were able to leverage that with the marketing team. Marketing team started using it too and started being able to get more creative with their, with their uh, campaigns as well. Point being, even if you think, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to get past you know, these big pitches that I got to make for big campaigns. I need a lot of resources. I'm probably going to get a lot of no's. If you start with a prototype, people react more favorably to something that is more real and something they can visualize and experience. And the, the cognitive load drops completely or it, it drops significantly, let's say. So I don't have to make this big leap, you know, as an exec or whoever it is you're trying to pitch start with that prototype it makes it so much more real it's a lot easier to get you know those 
those green lights to go run your campaigns or go run your your experimentation. Jobel, this has been a masterclass in creativity and finding inspiration and building out MVP programs. I thank you so much for your time. We could keep talking for another hour. I know it. We'll definitely have to get you on for another episode of, of B2B Better. I'll drop the links to your social profiles into the into the Sprintwell website in the description of this episode. But otherwise, thank you so much for coming on to B2B Better. It's been a pleasure, Jason. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. And that's it for this episode of B2B Better. If you enjoyed the interview, go ahead and subscribe to my podcast, leave a rating, a comment, a review, or just share it on social media. It'll really make my day. Every Monday morning, I send out a newsletter to B2B marketers all around the world on how to do better B2B marketing. You can sign up to that via the link that I'm going to leave in the description of this episode. Or if you need a fix of B2B marketing content goodness right now, you can head over to my website at www.bb.com jasonrbradwell.com. See you next week.